0: All right, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 4 today. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. So first thing, Lord Jesus, we just say we love you with all we have. Holy Spirit, thank you, thank you, thank you for your presence. Thank you for drawing us to Christ. We ask that as we study your word, you would speak to us, empower us, Make us better disciples of Jesus. Set our hearts on fire to serve you and to love you. Lord, deposit in us a fresh zeal for the gospel. May you alone be glorified and exalted. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. All of creation belongs to you. We ask that your kingdom would come. That the heavens and the earths would worship in spirit and truth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, somebody say, Amen. Amen. Well, as we move to Ezra chapter 4 today, I, w- I want to start by reading to you a parable from Matthew chapter 22. I know that seems like a curveball, but it's not. It's going to make a lot of sense in Jesus' name. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Let me read to you from Matthew 22. Verse 1 through 14, again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything's ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him to the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the king prepares a wedding feast for his son. Now obviously in the parable, the the king here is the father preparing a wedding feast for Jesus. So he sends servants out to invite all those who are invited. Now, when a king invites you to the wedding of his son, that's a privilege and an honor. And imagine the Queen of England inviting you to a wedding. Like, you're going to show up, right? It's, it's an honor to be invited to the wedding feast of a, of a dignitary. And so um, the, the parable is shocking and appalling that those who are invited to celebrate the king didn't show up, wouldn't come to the feast. The scripture says that some, even murdered, um, violently attacked those who were sending out the invitation. Now that's obviously a picture of prophets and apostles and preachers going and declaring God's invitation into his kingdom, yet being murdered and despised and rejected instead. So now in the parable, when those who are invited don't show up, the king says... Go to the highways, the byways, the good and the bad. Invite whoever will come to come and celebrate my son. The king's primary focus is that the son be celebrated. So he says, everybody's invited. Go invite anyone who will come. Now, we're pretty good with the parable up to this point. Because as, as Westerners, we've really bought in to the idea of inclusion. We, we like the idea of the gospel being for all people, and the gospel is an invitation to all people. So at this point of the parable, all are invited. No one's excluded. All are invited. And, and many come to celebrate the Son, this great Son who the Father, the King, loves. But then the last part of the parable we get a little uncomfortable with. The last part of the parable is, that the King sees a man who has come to the feast... But he is not dressed in wedding garments. Now, scholars wrestle just a bit with this. Um, There are two possible scenarios. Some scholars will say that every individual in this time period had, like, work clothes, day-to-day clothes, and they kept one pair of clothes um, for special events like this. And so those scholars would say that this man showed up, if you will, in his work clothes. Which would be disrespectful, right? You don't walk into the Queen of England with dirty clothes on. You, you put your good stuff on. This is my good stuff, just so you know. Um, flannel is my st- my good stuff. Um, other scholars say, and this we see this in history, that there are times where a king would have actually sent clothing to all of the invited guests. And so they would actually have been provided with um, a very swanky clothes to come to the celebration because the the king intended for the celebration to, to, to be all that it could be, to be the highest form of celebration. But now the king walks into the feast and there's a man standing in his work clothes with grease stains and his common clothes and the king says to the man, how did you get in here without wedding garments on? And the scripture says that he was bound and cast into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what we find in this parable is really interesting, and it's a, it's a factor that as Westerners we don't wrestle with. Um, we find in this parable inclusion and exclusion. We find in this parable Jesus saying, All are invited, the gospel goes to all people, all are invited to celebrate in the, in the wedding banquet of the sun. But some people intend to come on their own terms. You see, they, they're unwilling to take off their garments and put on the garments provided. Some people intend to show up to the celebration, but they will come with their own agenda and their own plans, and in doing so, they dishonor the king. And so, the Christian faith has always been a faith of, we will go to the nations. We believe that the nations should be called to Christ. But the gospel must be presented on the terms in which the Lord Jesus Christ has presented. You, you don't get to wear your own garments, your own righteousness. You don't get to come with pride. You don't get to stand before the Father and say, I came to the feast on the basis of my own works. You must strip yourself of your pride. You must strip yourself of your ego. Strip yourself of your own attempts at good works and say, I will wear the garment of Christ. I will be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. The only way I come is by Jesus. So there is very much an exclusion in Christianity. Now, as we turn to Ezra chapter 4, we're going to find this really interesting scenario where, um, where Zerubbabel and Yeshua, who are trying to build again Solomon's temple. What a monumental task. Remember, Solomon was the richest king in history. And David prepared for him um, all of the materials. And they had all of these artisans. And the temple was glorious and beautiful. And now we have these these post-exilic, these people who have been slaves in Babylon for 70 years, being released from Babylon, returning to Jerusalem with this great task of rebuilding Solomon's temple. They need help. They need resources. They feel overwhelmed by the task. What we're going to find in our text today is some men coming to Zerubbabel and saying, "We want to be part of the we want to be part of the rebuilding team. We want to join you, we want to help you." And Zerubbabel saying, "You will not be allowed permitted to help us because you intend to worship God on your own terms." Sometimes what looks like help, what looks like friendship is actually a uh, a Trojan horse from the enemy intended to pollute and to lead you off course. And sometimes uh, churches and people can get desperate. I need help. And the enemy will send someone who looks enticing. Maybe they have resources. Maybe they have skills. And and it looks like I, I need help. And here comes a friend or a mentor who's willing to help. But if that helper is not submitted to the Lordship of Christ... What looks like help is actually a Trojan horse to pollute and dilute your faith. And you have to learn to say, no, you'll have no part in my life. There is a part in Christianity where some are excluded. And that feels harsh for Westerners because um, we've been taught that, and we, we say, the church should be love. God is love. And the church should be love. We should be the most loving people on the planet. But we need to define what love is. If love is always accepting and affirming, that's the way we've defined love in our society, then we've got a real problem because that's not the way that the scriptures define love. To use a very extreme example, and forgive me, um, I want to care for people, forgive me for this extreme example, but I, I, I don't want to allow someone who's dangerous, a pedophile for, ent- for instance, to live in my upstairs house where my kids live, like that's not loving right? That's dangerous. And so we have to have enough discernment to know when to be a people of inclusion, when to present the gospel to all people, and then to say to others, you intend to come on your own terms. Therefore, you're, you're not one of us. There, there's a very important tension here. Alright, let me read you the text, and I'll try to show you this in the life of Zerubbabel and, Zerubbabel and Yeshua. Ezra chapter 4. Verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the day of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel, said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and made them afraid to build, and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So again, remember what we read last week that these people who have been in exile now for 70 years, they've returned to Jerusalem, not all of the Jews, but these, only these who God stirred their hearts. So we have this remnant of unified, passionate people. They're, they're not bickering, they're not jockeying for order. They're submitted to the leadership of Yeshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. They've got this unified purpose. They're going to see Jerusalem, which has been burned to the ground, rebuilt for the glory of God. But the task is way beyond their ability to perform in their own strength. And we read last week that as they laid the foundation of the temple, that there was a great shouting with worship, and many rejoiced that the temple of God was being built, while the fathers, those who had seen the, the old temple, The old men who saw Solomon's temple, they wept and they cried because they realized that the temple that they were building now would not be as glorious as Solomon's temple. So on one hand, they have this great task, rebuild the temple. And on the other hand, they're very aware that the task is above and beyond their abilities. There's a celebration that God's released them from Babylon. And now they're in Jerusalem. But there's a mourning that... Jerusalem is still laid to waste and they don't have the resources that Solomon had. They won't be able to build as glorious of a temple as Solomon built. So the scripture says that in this hour as they're getting ready to build, there are adversaries of Judah and Benjamin who come to the fathers and to Zerubbabel and to Yeshua and say, let us build with you. Who are these Adversaries. Who are these people in the land who come to Zerubbabel and say, Let us build? We're not, and, and scholarship's not totally sh- sure. We don't have a perfect historical picture of what happened in this, this season. The men said, Do you remember? They said, We have worshiped your God since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So there was a, an Assyrian king. The Assyrians conquered. Israel, the northern tribes, there was an Assyrian king who apparently planted some people in Jerusalem, and now these people say, We worship Yahweh too. There's, again, s- some confusion about exactly what's happening here, but we do know that many times, think of these Jews who lived in Jerusalem. As they were conquered, what happened? They were taken to Babylon, they were taken to other cities within the Babylonian Empire, and they were scattered. So that they, when a people group has a common religion, a common language, common um, cultural identity, that people group will gel and work together, and there's unity. And so what these conquerors were doing is they were scattering these people groups over the entire of their empire because they wanted the land to be kept, right? Like if Jerusalem, which was largely empty at this point, but if you, if you conquer an area and you strip all the people, there's no one to work the fields, Right, They want the produce, they want the money that they'll get from, from a region still being populated, but they don't want the region to be populated by the ethnic group or the unified cultural people who originally populated the place. Because then, then they may rise up against them. And so what you find is people groups were scattered out throughout the empire, and sometimes people groups were taken from one area and then planted in another area to work fields that weren't their own. And so it may be that there are now planted in Jerusalem some peoples who, who, some suggest that they were Samaritans, we don't know exactly who they are, but they've lived in the area for a while, and they say, look, we worship Yahweh too, let us partner with you and help you build. One thing that scholarship is agreed upon, and commentators are agreed upon, is that these people are very much, without a shadow of a doubt, people who practice syncretism. Everyone say, syncretism. Syncretism, when you're speaking of um, the of religious world, syncretism means that you take a little bit from this religion, and you take a little bit from this religion, and you grab a little bit from over here, and you wrap it all together in a nice bow, and you say, look, I worship the same God as you. Now, they may claim to worship the God of Abraham, but in syncretism, they may also be borrowing some from, um, from, from the worship of Baal. They may also be borrowing some from the worship of Marduk. They may also be practicing and offering sacrifices according to the gods of their own ancestors. They may come to Yahweh to pray for certain things, but then they're going to go to Baal to pray for other things. And so syncretism is the idea that I can worship one god while having other gods in my back pocket. And I will worship this God how I please to worship Him. That's largely where the breakdown is going to be. I will worship, they're saying, we worship Yahweh on our terms. That's an incredible breakdown in in our concepts of what worship is. We don't worship Yahweh on our terms. We worship Yahweh according to how He has prescribed and required to be worshipped. So, um, from here, these people come and they say, Look, we're ready to help. And we worship your God too. We've been here for a long time now. And um, I want you to think, if you can, try to wear Zerubbabel and Yeshua's shoes here for a minute. They are desperate. They need help. They need resources. Again, we just moved from Ezra chapter 3, where their elders, their fathers, are... You are weeping and crying loudly because their work isn't as beautiful and glorious as their fathers remembered. How easy would it be to be so crushed by hearing the fathers cry that they would say, Whoever wants to help us, let's do it. There is a temptation, there is always a temptation for the sake of momentum to say, We will receive anyone who wants to help. There is a temptation to be successful. And sometimes we desire success more than we desire holiness. And when we put success above holiness, we'll find ourselves partnering with people who are actually Trojan horses of the enemy. So the scripture actually, this is, Again, it's, it's, a, it's a mind-boggling thing for us as Westerners. The Scriptures actually praise Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the fathers of, as having great discernment in this moment when they decide to reject these men. They need help, but they don't need help that bad. They need help, but they are not willing to compromise their convictions. One, one, hear me, I know this is such like a counter-cultural word right now. One a church, a body of people must have unified convictions. We must have standards of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a a member of our family. There must be some standards that we are unwilling to compromise on. The word of God is true, period. We are not willing to compromise that truth. If we do not have unified convictions we will open our doors to some who have their own agendas and actually attend to pollute. Now let's let's talk here just for a minute. We said in our introduction and historians say this, I think I've taught you this before, golly I don't remember which historian said this, I read this when I was so, so um, when I was young, I know I'm very old now but when I was younger 10 years ago or so Um, Historians, some historians, secular historians believe that one of the things about Christianity that caused it to spread so quickly, because it spread wildly, um, they believe was Christianity's tension between inclusion and exclusion. So Christianity as a religion was strange to the world because Christianity said Jew, Gentile, poor, white, black, Asian, European, Latin American, we don't care. We don't care what color you are. We don't care how much money you have. We don't care about your status, your class. We don't, we, there, we don't care about your disabilities. We don't care about your past mistakes. We don't care if you've stolen in the past or murdered. You are invited to be a Christian. You are invited to come to Christ. This gospel is not a white man's religion or a black man's religion or Asian man's religion. This gospel is Jesus' religion. And he says all are welcome to come to him. So Christianity was wildly inclusive. The world had never known anything like Christianity saying to a slave, or a man in prison, or again, a murderer, you can be a son of God because of Jesus. It was wildly inclusive. But Christianity was also wildly exclusive. Because there had never been another religion who so boldly said, but you cannot come to the Father unless you come through Jesus. There was never another religion who so boldly said, you are invited, but you must bow your knee to Jesus and Jesus alone. No man comes to the Father lest he comes through the Son. There was no other religion that said, you have to put down your idols. I don't care who your ancestors worshipped. You can't worship them anymore. I don't care what tribal ancestry worship you once participated in. You must abandon your cultural heritage in that way and bow your knee to a Jewish man. You you must come to Jesus. And so, on one hand, the world had never known such an inclusive religion. And on the same other stroke, the world had never known such an exclusive religion that said Jesus is the only way. And so, um, we as a people are going to have to learn this holy tension. All are invited, but all must bow their knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of... um, you guys didn't think you were going to get out of this sermon with some church history, so... Um, this isn't that old of history. But I'm reminded of a tension between Billy Graham, who obviously was the greatest evangel- one of the greatest evangelists of the day, and um, my favorite preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was, without a shadow of a doubt in my mind, the greatest preacher of the last hundred years. And so, um, Billy Graham was holding crusades all over the world, right? And when Billy Graham held a crusade he would invite all kinds of pastors, sometimes even Catholic priests, to come and to participate in the crusade. His idea was that as people got saved, they should connect with local pastors in the region. So Billy Graham reaches out to Martin Lloyd-Jones at one period. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones is the most influential preacher of the day. Um, Reaches out to Martin Lloyd-Jones and asks Martin Lloyd-Jones to participate in his crusades. Now, this is a drama that a lot of people talk about. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones kindly refused to participate in anything that Billy Graham did because Billy Graham partnered with preachers who would not affirm that the scriptures are the final authority. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying to Billy Graham, they had, I think, a three- or four-hour meeting. They say it was very cordial, but Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying to Billy Graham, you have an evangelistic gift. You're going to lead people to the Lord, and then you're going to put them in the hands of a pastor who doesn't believe the Bible. He was saying, "You, you are, you are flirting with a, a, grie, a, a grievous danger here," and so Martin Lord Jones, in a gracious way for the entirety of his life, refused to participate in Billy Graham's ministry because he was worried that Billy Graham was was flirting with, um, with poison, inviting. Inviting people to Christ and then leading them to churches that that didn 't hold to the authority of god 's word and he saw that as a very slippery slope that would lead to um, to danger um, interestingly j i. Packer, who was a disciple of Martin Lloyd-Jones partnered with Billy Graham believed that Billy Graham was in the right and J.I. Packer's perspective was that they shouldn't write off these churches who are now abandoning the word of God but they should essentially try to infiltrate these churches and bring change from the inside out. Now, I'm not here to say who's right or wrong. Um, I'm just here to say that there is a tension that we all have to wrestle with. And whether Billy Graham or Martin Lloyd-Jones was in the right, I guess history will tell. Um, but, But it's interesting to think about the tension that exists there. For Martin Lloyd-Jones to say, I am concerned that there is a slippery slope that you are leading people to, that they may fall off. Now, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' defense, every, every denomination that has um, decided to compromise their convictions concerning the Word of God, every denomination that, that says, we believe the Bible, but it's not inspired, we teach the Bible, but it's not final authority. All of those denominations have wildly crashed over the last 50 years. When we talk about the church in the West crumbling, um, it's not the Baptist churches that are crumbling. The Baptist churches that teach the Bible are doing really well. When we say the church in the West is crumbling, it's it's largely the mainline churches who have walked away from the authority of Scripture. And so, in Lloyd-Jones' defense, there, there, we do see the danger of what he was teaching. And so, now, with this in mind, when when Zerubbabel and Yeshua need help, and people come and say, "We're ready. We're ready to work," and they say, Mm-mm, we, "We're not that desperate. We are unwilling for you to have a relationship with our children. We're unwilling for you, with your compromised conviction, to come and be a part of our our life and our worship. We are concerned that you might have an agenda." To cause us to abandon pure and holy worship to the Lord. Now, why was Israel judged in the first place? Largely because their worship had, had been polluted. They're saying, this is why we were dragged out of Jerusalem in the first place, man. We're not doing this again. Think of Paul saying, we don't again, we don't like this passage of scripture, but it is a passage of scripture. Paul saying, I don't want you to have lunch. He says this, I don't want you to have lunch with anyone who claims to be a brother in Christ, yet is living in sexual immorality. Don't have lunch with them. Why is Paul saying that? Because people influence you. Paul says, I'm not saying that you can't have lunch with unbelievers. He's saying, of course you'll have to do life with unbelievers. If we... If we tried to do that, how would we be be evangelistic? How would we even do life only dealing with... I'm not saying that, but Paul's saying, I am saying, anyone who says, I love Jesus, and they're cheating on their wife, don't have anything to do with them. Exclusion. Paul is saying, guard yourself against the slippery slope of compromise. Now, that's a hard message for us to hear, but we ought to hear it. There's no point in our Christian life where we should be so desperate that we're willing to allow people to come in and help and to influence and to mentor us, to guide us, who have not bowed their knee fully to Jesus. I want to say, with grace in my heart, quickly, I want to say one more thing and we'll, we'll get ready to wrap up here. Um, part of the church growth movement, which really started in the 80s, and And we don't want to totally spit on the church growth movement or spit on anyone who participates in the church growth movement. We use a lot of the principles that came out of the eighties um, and so there's nothing wrong but part of the part of what happened was we became so desperate to have more people in our churches that we started compromising our standards and 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 for a while, that worked. We did have more people in our churches, but now, fifty years later, forty years later, we're looking back and we're going, wait we." We kind of have more people in our churches. Um, we actually don't. We just have more people in bigger churches. Um, and But we're also weaker. We, we don't have the conviction, the discipleship, the strength that the church of our grandparents had. And so we need to recognize that for the church, the chief goal was not just to be as palatable as we can be to the world. The church's goal is to open their doors to anyone and everyone, red, yellow, black, and white, who is willing to bow their knee to Jesus. But the church's goal was never to open her doors wide open to people who claim to love Jesus, yet live lives that spit in His face. And, and we've got our wires crossed. And again, we don't want to be haughty and proud and say, we do it right and everyone else does, does it wrong. We don't want to do that. But we do want to, at the same, in the same stroke, say, look, I'll be controversial for a second. It's very—it's very much a spiritual gift of mine. Controversy—it it works. Um, but for instance, when you talk about our, our current um, movement for sexuality, right? Like, um, there's quite a movement in our culture uh, to embrace every form of sexuality. There are churches—we um, would call them liberal churches—who call themselves affirming or inclusive, and that means that um, homosexual couples they they can be married. And they, they would, their marriages would be honored in the church in the same way that heterosexual couples. They call that affirming or inclusive. And I'm saying that I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody. Um, but I say the same thing to a homosexual couple as I would say to a drunkard. You are welcome here. We love you. We, would, we want you to serve Jesus, but I'm not going to affirm sin. And so if you have an alcohol problem in the room, I want you to hear me say, I love you. I want you to serve Jesus. I'm not going to pat you on the back and tell you to keep drinking. It's just not going to happen. And I have to be faithful to the word of God. And that we don't do that with arrogance. We don't get joy out of any of that. But we are saying we don't want to compromise what the scripture requires of us as it pertains to pure worship. There are many ways in which that fleshes out. The sexuality is just the easiest because our culture has a real problem of wanting to talk about sex 24-7. So what Zerubbabel and Yeshua say is No. We, we're taught that churches are never allowed to say no because we're supposed to be loving. And love, defined by American Western Christianity, is hug everybody. I'm okay with hugging, but that does not mean affirm everybody. Um, not affirming Putin today, right? Not, not doing that. Um, nothing loving about that. And so we, we want to be a people who hold to the inclusion all are welcome but all must bow their knee to Jesus. Now what we see at the end of our passage is that after Zerubbabel and Yeshua, who are, watch the tension here. Listen to me, guys. I'm, I promise you I'm going to wrap up. Listen to me. Watch the tension of Zerubbabel and Yeshua who are partnered. They are yoked together. They are serving God together. They are brothers. It's a beautiful strength that they have as they serve the Lord together. And then watch the the antithesis of the enemy trying to send help in, right? You, you've got to recognize who's my Zerubbabel and who's a plant from the enemy to try to drag me down into compromise. We want to be people who minister to the lost. The lost are always welcome at our table. We're always reaching out to people, but we need to make sure that we are bringing people up and not being drugged down by others. And so what shakes out in the text really quickly is that these people's agenda is exposed? Because as soon as a Zerubbabel and Yeshua say no, you can't have any part in us, immediately they start to try to thwart their plans. They hire people to get involved in the work and to try to mess stuff up. They're doing transactions at this point. Think they're they're buying lumber from uh, from places. They're 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 hiring artisans from over here. And now these these enemies, these people who said we want to help you. We see that they're Trojan horses now because they're actually just trying to mess the plans up. And for years now, Zerubbabel and Yeshua are going to have to try to work and continue to build the house of the Lord while these people who once said we're your friend show their true colors and do everything they can to destroy their efforts. They're going to have to persevere through the efforts of the enemy. Now the great wisdom, the great beauty of Zerubbabel and Yeshua in this season is that they use discernment. They use discernment. I was having a conversation with someone this week. I don't even remember who I was talking to, but we were talking about the idea of being very careful who you allow to influence your children. You need to choose your close friends carefully. Always have people that you're reaching out to to share the gospel, but choose your close friends carefully because your children are watching, or listening, your grandchildren are watching and listening, and we don't want to allow the enemy to plant people in our lives who on one hand say we're your friend, but underneath it are actually working to destroy or to pollute or dilute the worship that God requires from us. Are you guys okay with that? I know that's a, that's not a common word we hear, but, but it's a biblical theme that that we need to... We've got to have convictions. We've got to be concerned with honoring Jesus more than we're concerned with everyone feeling like they're affirmed. Right? Um. I, we don't set the rules. Like um, It's not us saying, uh, you have to do, do this, or this is what Christianity is. All we're doing is saying, Jesus, we want to worship you in the way in which you've required to be worshipped. You are Lord. your Master. Not my opinions, not my intellect, not your ideology, not this common, uh, the modern cultural emphases. What did Jesus say? What does the scriptures teach? That must be our emphasis. Worship team, come for me. We'll get ready to close. So in this series, we're we're following Zerubbabel and Yeshua so far as they try to reestablish in Jerusalem pure worship. As they try to reestablish in Jerusalem holy, hot praise to Yahweh. And what we found today in our series is that in order to maintain spirit and truth worship, in order to maintain a people who are totally dedicated to God, sometimes you've got to stiff arm folks who, who look like they're coming to help, but refuse to really bow their knee to Jesus. Sometimes we have to exclude. Sometimes we have to say, you are welcome. You must bow your knee to Jesus. You must really worship him. You must love him with all your heart. If you stand to your feet. As we talked and prayed this morning, um, Micah had a dream and some others had some words this week that they felt like the Lord was speaking. Um, we, we felt like there was a word from the Lord through several folks um, that in this season, there is spiritual warfare and and some of us may be experiencing heightened temptation. You may be experiencing maybe you're experiencing pressure at work, right? To, to compromise your views. Maybe you've recently decided, Hey, for us, for my family, we are going to, um, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to sit around on Friday night and get drunk. We're going to try to honor the Lord. We're not going to participate in, uh, getting drunk. And maybe your family's pressuring you and mocking you. um, we feel like there are some in the house who are experiencing a wave of temptation. There were a couple things that we wanted to say. One, the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that God always provides a way of escape. And so as you feel pressure from hell to compromise, as you feel pressure from social media or people around you to bow your knee to the the plans of the enemy or the plans of this world, I want you to remember that God always provides a way of escape. Two, James said, resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. And so sometimes you've got to dig your heels in and just push back and just resist. We we want you to hear us say that the temptation, it can be hard and that we all struggle. There's no shame for being in a season where you're struggling. We want you to hear us say that there is a way out, that God is your strength. You can't just push with your own flesh. I want you to hear us say that we as a family are going to resist the devil together, and I promise you we're going to watch him flee. We're going to watch him flee from this region. And so as we get ready to close, if that's you, if you're, if you would say, man, I'm just, I'm just struggling. Maybe you're not living in open sin, but maybe you're having dreams that, uh, dreams of, of, of temptation that are leading you down paths you don't want to go. Maybe the internet is, is it's, it's leading you down paths. You, you don't want to go. Maybe there's pressure at work. If that's you, any spiritual warfare, I want to ask you to come to the altar today and we want to we want to press in. The scripture says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but demonic powers. And so this morning, if you're struggling, we want to pray and ask the Lord to bring you victory that you would have breakthrough in those areas. And again, if you're struggling at all, um, no shame. We believe the altar is a place of, of safety, not a place of shame it's just a just just imagery of us coming to the to to sacrifice and to say god my life is yours use me pour your spirit out on me if that's you i want you to come to the altar today too if you have never really given your life to jesus i want you to hear us say today your your past sin doesn't matter we don't care how bad you stole robbed lied cheated we we don't care about your past drug abuse or sexual sin, none of that keeps you out of the gospel, keeps you out of the kingdom. The only thing that will keep you out of the kingdom is being unwilling to bow your knee to Jesus. And so there's no better day than today to bow your knee to Jesus. If you come to the altar today and you'll, You'll pray and say, God, you have my life and I'll worship Jesus for the entirety of my life. You can be born again. You can have new, fresh breath in your lungs. The scripture says that your heart of stone would be transformed by the power of the spirit to a heart of flesh and all of your sins will be eradicated, never to be brought up again. And in heaven, you'll have uh, live in God's presence forever. If that's you, if you need to give your life to Jesus, today's the day, man. Don't wait another hour. Third, if you're struggling with sickness at all, I just feel quickly that there, there's someone here who's having frequent migraines. You just, like your head is just pounding this week. If that's you, I want to ask you to come to the altar. We want to pray for you. Any other sickness, we want to ask you to come. We believe God's here to heal. So the altars are open. I want you to come. If any of those things hit you, I want you to respond. This is a place of safety and health. Let's, let's press in for a couple more minutes and ask the Lord to bring deliverance. The worship team is going to lead us to sing just as folks are receiving ministry.